Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. We've looked at the first two chapters last week as we continue here in our summary review. In the first chapter, we looked at God speaking. God is speaking, and He's speaking to us. The old times in the Old Testament, He spoke unto the fathers by the prophets in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken unto us by His Son. And there in the chapter, first chapter, the Son is superior to the angels, superior even in His humanity or His incarnation. <clears throat> and I say that by way of reminder because it's important for us to remember that the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jews who were living at the time. They had, um, many of them had um, maybe been alive uh, when Jesus was on the earth. But you recall, <clears throat> as Jesus walked this earth, he looked just like everyone else. He was a human. He was fully man. And yet, God was with him, the Bible says. Everything that Jesus did, he did <clears throat> according to his Father's will. He was not only fully human, but he was fully divine. And it was baffling to many people as they would listen to Jesus talk how he spoke with authority, not as the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees spoke, but he spoke with authority. But his, works were, his words were also authenticated, and his person as the Son of God was also authenticated by the miracles which he did. And so Jesus was not just a man, but he was divine. He was fully God. Yet the Jews here... Of course, having grown up under the law, knowing that there was a promised Messiah, stumbled, stumbled at that cornerstone, as the scripture calls Jesus, the chief cornerstone, they stumbled at him. And, you know, we see in several different places in the scripture, well, some thought he would come in, you know, in amazing glory as some superhuman um, type of being. There were others thought that he would come and restore the kingdom to Israel uh, they seem to have their own ideas of what the Messiah would be, and Jesus just didn't fit the mold for most of them. And then, on top of that, he was killed. How glorious is that? Their leader had been killed. Of course, he rose again from the dead and showed himself to a select number of people, believers, after his resurrection. <clears throat> And we looked at that recently at those 40 days in between his resurrection and his ascension. But the writer of Hebrews is writing to these Jews who have turned to Christ, but who are undergoing great persecution, and who may be considering or thinking about returning to the old system of worship which they had grown up under, which they'd known all their life, the Old Testament law. In the first chapter... Jesus is presented as the Son of God. He is the Son. Angels are commanded to worship Him. Angels are servants. The Son is far superior to angels. In chapter 2, He is superior to angels even in His humanity. He took upon Himself the human form. <clears throat> in verse 14 of chapter 2, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, 
that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. Now, chapter 2 ends with some information that is going to be brought up in the, in the coming chapters. At the end of chapter 2, it says in verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful, and those next words, high priest. Jesus is to be a high priest. In things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Now, he is not spoken of as a high priest again until the end of chapter 4. And so we come here to the end of chapter 2, and we begin chapter 3 with, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Here at the beginning of chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews announces who he's writing to. Holy brethren and partakers of the heavenly calling. He's talking to professing believers those who profess to have placed their faith and trust in Christ, holy brethren, which means sanctified, those who've been set apart for God, partakers of the heavenly calling. He addresses them, these Jewish believers, and they are called to do something. He says, I want you to consider, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, of our faith. And it's Christ Jesus. He mentions these two roles, the role of apostle and the role of high priest. Remember, he has just introduced the thought or the the topic of Jesus being a high priest in chapter 2, verse 17. Now he's going to deal with Jesus in the role of apostle. And at the end of chapter 4, he picks up again in verse 14 with the high priest, seeing then that we have a great high priest. But in between... The end of chapter 2 and the beginning of 4, verse 14, he's talking about Jesus in his role as an apostle. Now, we see Jesus in Hebrews presented as the prophet, the priest, and the king. The prophet or the apostle. What is an apostle? It was a sent one, one who was sent from God, sent with a message. What is God's message? Well, it's God's speech to us through his son. And... In chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? So what is the speech of Christ? He has come to make known to us the way of salvation. He is the apostle, God's apostle. Now, in chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews is going to contrast Jesus. Remember, Jesus, the man who was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, at the age of 30 began his public ministry, and died in his 33rd year. He did not live a long life on this earth. 33 is pretty young. But he is speaking of this Jesus and this person, and he is contrasting him and comparing him to whom? Moses. Well, now, 
in the Jews' mind, that's, this is quite a comparison. Because Moses held a high position in the thinking of the Jews. Extremely high. Between Abraham and Moses, I don't know who was thought of more highly. But I want you, again, why am I saying this? Because I want you to think the way these people were thinking. I want you to see what's going on, why it was written the way it was written, and what is being communicated, because it's important for us to realize this. Why was Jesus contrasted with Moses? Well, again, consider the regard that the Jews had for Moses. He was God's apostle in the Old Testament. John says, For the law came by Moses, the grace and truth by Jesus Christ. Who was Moses? Well, we know the history of Moses. God used him, miraculously miraculously spared him at his birth, but used him to be the deliverer who would lead the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, where they had been for, what, 430 years. And here is this man who leads them out, God's appointed leader, Moses. In John chapter 5, John chapter 5, verses 45 through 47. I want to just read a couple of passages here to kind of give you a little bit of a fresh perspective. And Jesus is speaking of the testimony of John the Baptist. They're, they're questioning who he is. He has made himself equal to God by claiming that he is the Son of God, and they're all up in arms. But he talks about being equal with God in his authority, <clears throat> power, the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the works of Christ, the witness of the Father, the witness of the Scriptures. And they come to the end of the chapter, and in verse 45, he says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? That was greatly offensive to them because they really were followers of Moses. Uh, they, you know, they believed Moses, but Jesus is saying, really, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because he was writing of me. What a claim. What a claim. But not only in John chapter 5, but look at John chapter 9. <clears throat> Just a few pages over. In John chapter 9, verses 28 and 29. Jesus had opened the eyes of the blind man. The blind man is called in a couple of times to the Pharisees to give his testimony. They ask him again in verse 26, Tell us again what he did to thee. How do you open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you did not hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Verse 28, Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses, but as for this fellow, we, not, we don't know from whence he is. Wow, what a statement. But again, note their regard for Moses. Oh, it's, it's without controversy that God spoke to Moses, and we are Moses' disciples. But this, this guy, we know where he came from. We know from whence he is. He's just another man, just like us. Why should we believe him? Why should we be his disciples? We're the disciples of Moses. Moses is much greater than this man. 
That was the idea of the Jews, the contemporary Jews. And so as the, as the apostles writing here, the book of Hebrews, writing to these Jewish believers, he is telling them Jesus in his humanity, Jesus, the man that walked this earth, was far greater than Moses. And that is a significant statement to a Jew. In Acts chapter 6, <clears throat> Acts chapter 6, verses 9 through 14, Stephen is brought before the council. And it says, And they, sub they suborned men, or hired men, in verse 11 of Acts chapter 6, which said, We have heard him, that Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Oh, ho, ho, ho. look at the reverence the Jews gave Moses and the disregard they give to Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. Now, in Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, and here Paul is having some trouble because there are Jews who are following him around. And they're telling people that Paul is just stirring up the people and he's trying to get people to disregard the law of Moses. In chapter 15, it's, and so Peter comes and he is there testifying before James there at the church in Jerusalem. And they're talking about the ministry there that they had among the Gentiles. And so after hearing hearing Paul out, they give him some advice. In verse 19, Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him. There are people out there preaching Moses. They are preaching the law. There are Jews out there in the synagogues, and they're still preaching Moses. The hath in every city, then that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. And then in Acts chapter 21, Acts chapter 21, and if we look at verse 21. Paul has come again to Jerusalem. In verse 17, the brethren received them gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. <clears throat> and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe and they are all zealous of the law, of Moses' teachings. The Pentateuch, first five books of the Old Testament, very zealous of the law. And 
They are informed of thee, or they hear this report about you, that you teach all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear what, that thou art come. And so there was this council brought together of the church because this reputation was preceding Paul. There were Jews going out saying, ah, Paul is trying to get people, all the, trying to get the Jews to, to stop living according to their customs. No, don't circumcise your babies. don't need to do that. Uh, you know, these other customs, they're done away. Now, we, of course, have no full knowledge and full disclosure. We know what Paul was preaching. Paul was preaching a righteousness by faith, not of the law. Just because you were circumcised didn't mean you were chosen of God. But remember why the Jews thought this. They had grown up under the Old Testament. And now they put their faith in Jesus Christ. What do they do with all those customs? What do they do with that way of religion, that way of life that they had been raised under? Was it just to be forsaken? Was there any significance of it? What was it? And they had to come to realize that all of that was designed to point to what? To point to Christ. But here, again, the significance of Moses in the life of the Jew. It was great. It cannot be underestimated. And so the writer here is informing the people in Hebrews chapter 3, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him. That's what an apostle, apostle is a sent one. He was faithful to the one who sent him, just as Moses was faithful in all his house. So he starts out by saying that Jesus was faithful, just as Moses was faithful. They were both faithful. However, Jesus was worthy of more glory than Moses. I forget how old Moses was when he died, but wasn't he like 120 years old, I believe? 120, so I didn't forget. Moses was 120 years old when he died. He'd had a, an 80-year ministry leading the children of Israel. From the time when he was 40 till he was 120. Jesus died at 33. His ministry was three years. Changed the world. Ch changed the world. But here, Moses was faithful, Jesus was faithful, but Jesus, this man, note what he says in verse 3. He's pointing out his humanity. For this man, the man Christ Jesus, was counted worthy of more glory of Moses. In fact, so much more glory. Let me give you a comparison, Paul, uh, the, the writer says. Not Paul. <laughs> he says... He was worthy of more glory inasmuch as he who hath built a house is more, has more glory than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. Now Moses was very faithful, verily, truly faithful in his house as a servant. Moses was at the level of a servant, but Christ was faithful as a son ruling over his own house. There is a completely different degree there. A servant does not ever bear rule. A servant is a servant. Jesus was faithful in his house as a son who ruled over the house. Completely different level. 
Moses was faithful as a servant. Jesus was faithful to the one who sent him as a son who rules over his house. Now, he says this, and then he gives a great warning. Here's this warning. The warning is in verse, begins in verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Now, if your Bible may have a parenthesis in verse 7, which ends at the end of verse 1, there's this warning. He says, wherefore, if we skip that parenthesis, we'd go from wherefore in verse 7 down to verse 12. Wherefore, take heed, brethren, that you do not do likewise. That's what he's saying. Well, what's the likewise? He's referring to verses 7 through 11. What's the example that he puts out? He says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, do not harden your hearts as did the Old Testament Israelites in the wilderness. What did they do? They tested God. Okay? He says, They tempted me, proved me, and saw my works. How long? Forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and saith, They do alway err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. And here's the consequence. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. There's the Old Testament example. And he puts that out there as he gives this warning. And what is the warning? The warning is, do not harden your hearts. Why would he give that warning to these Jews? Well, what have the religious leaders done with Jesus? They hardened their hearts. They did not hear his words. Remember the beginning of chapter one? This all, folks, this all ties together. I hope you're seeing it. God who spoke has now spoken by his son. Chapter two, do not let his words slip away. Pay attention. Pay attention to his words. You will not escape if you neglect so great salvation. Now, all you Jews, listen. Yes, Moses was a great man. But the man Christ Jesus was far greater. Far greater than Moses. Now, don't harden your hearts. Don't turn me off. Hear what I am saying. He says, do not be like Old Testament Israel. They hardened their hearts. And they reaped the consequence of not being able to enter into his rest. There's a, and there's going to be a comparison here when he talks about rest in chapter 4. We're going to get there. But note what he says. He comes into verse 12, and so he says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Great warning given. Do not harden your hearts like Old Testament Israel did. And in fact, you need to be encouraging one another daily 
that you do not be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, the warning is against the sin of unbelief. Sin deceives and hardens the heart. We'd encourage one another daily. Now, in verse 14, I'm going to bring up verse 14. There is a a correlation here with verse 6. But in verse 14 and verse 6b, we see here the writer of Hebrews presenting faithfulness. Faithfulness as clear evidence of a true believer. How do you know you're a true believer? Or how do you recognize a true believer? One of the characteristics of a true believer is faithfulness. Look at verse 6. He's talking about Christ being as faithful as a son over his own house, whose house are we, what? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm unto the end. That word if could also be put since. Your holding fast is not a condition of your salvation. It is evidence of your salvation. Then verse 14, for we are made partakers of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to what? To the end. God's children persevere to the end. Let me give you another reading of verse 14. For it is evident that we are made partakers of Christ because we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Those who are Christ's are faithful to the end. And again, that goes to the theme of the book of Hebrews, being faithful. Don't depart. You Hebrew believers, don't go back to the Old Testament system of religion. Keep your faith in Christ. And so here, this warning. Now, the warning continues. He goes on. Well, let me, let's pause there for just a second. I think it's important enough for us to look at this. Again, faithfulness is a clear evidence of a true believer. I'll make two statements here. The truly saved person will persevere to the end. And the truly saved person must persevere to the end. And I said that there's, there's a slight difference in what I said. There's a statement of fact, a true believer will persevere to the end. But there's also the fact that a true believer must persevere to the end. Now, in Philippians 1 and verse 6, I'll just give you a couple of references on these just to make sure you're clear. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, We are confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. That fits under this. The truly saved person will persevere to the end. Why? Because God is going to perform his work to the end. That gives us confidence. It's God's work. He's doing it. He will complete it. And then also 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 24. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, one of the shorter verses in Scripture, it says this, Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it or perform it. He's called us to salvation. What's he going to do? He's going to finish it. He is going to save us. That verse again fits with this statement, the truly saved will persevere to the end. 
However, it is also true that the truly saved must persevere to the end. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Philippians 2, 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. Demonstrate it. Faith results in what? Works. James, the message of James, faith without works is dead. It's worthless. So the believer must, a true believer must persevere to the end. 2 Peter 1, verse 10. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. So what does Peter say? Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. The true believer must persevere to the end. So here in Hebrews chapter 3, we see it stated in verse 6 and also in verse 14. The evidence of being a partaker in Christ is that we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Remember, this is a book of exhortation written to Jewish believers to encourage them to hold fast. Be faithful. Now, he ends chapter 3 by turning our attention again to those Jews in the Old Testament who when they had heard the word, what did they do? They provoked. They provoked the Lord. In verse 17, but whom, with whom was he grieved 40 years? It was those who had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness. And remember, the day of temptation when your fathers tempted me in the wilderness, he is referring to that time in Numbers chapter 14 when the children of Israel came up to the banks of the Jordan River the first time, prepared to enter into the promised land. They sent in the spies, and the spies came back and said, there's no way we can go in there. They're going to kill us and eat us up, and we're going to be destroyed. Ten of the twelve spies gave that message. Joshua and Caleb, of course, said, let's trust the Lord and go on in. He's told us, oh, let's go. But the ten prevailed against the two. God said, all right, you're going to get what you asked for. You're going to die in the wilderness. You're not going to enter in. And for the next 40 years, that whole generation dropped like flies, and the Judean desert was littered with bodies for 40 years until the last one, I believe the last one that probably died was Moses, he got to look in right before they went in. And the only two of that generation that went into the promised land were Joshua and Caleb, the two spies that were faithful. But I always felt bad for those guys. They had to walk around 40 years and watch those people that die that, that, that wouldn't go in when they wanted to. I almost feel like they, maybe those two should have gone in by themselves. But anyway, there's God's plan. And so what did God say? They will not enter into my rest. And they didn't. To whom, and to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? But to them that what? Believed not. Didn't believe what? God's word. See the theme? God has spoken. Don't let his word slip. Do not, do not have a heart of unbelief. Believe the words of God. These people didn't believe God's word. They hardened their hearts, and what happened? They died in the wilderness. So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Chapter 4. 
chapter 4, he continues with this warning. The warning continues. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. That's chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. What's the message of the Son? It's the gospel message. If you receive the gospel, you enter into his rest. The Old Testament Jews did not receive God's gospel, his good news. They did not believe his word, and they did not enter into his rest. They did not enter into the promised land on a physical level, but they also did not enter into his rest on a spiritual level. And so the warning continues here in chapter 4. Listen, be warned, let us therefore fear, lest this promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Now, why did they come short of it? Why did the Old Testament Jews not enter into his rest? Well, it says the gospel preached unto them was preached unto us as well, or preached unto us was preached unto them as well, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. What is faith? Believing God's word. So they heard the promise, they heard God's word, but they didn't believe it. God told them, go into the promised land. I'm going to give it to you. Did they believe it? No, they didn't. And they provoked him to anger. They provoked him to wrath. Verse 3 of chapter 4, For we which have believed... Now, he's talking about us today. He's talking about the people to whom he is writing in the last days, these believing Jews. This applies right to us too. We which have believed do enter into rest. We do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, and then these words, it says, if they shall enter into my rest. If you're reading the King James, it says this a couple of times in this passage. The interpretation is, they shall not enter into my rest. When we read it in the King James, it looks like, oh, there's an option here. Or it's a, uh, you know, if, maybe. No, it's they shall not enter in my rest. That's what he had said. So for we which have believed to enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. And he says, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, remember, in this passage, there are three rests. Now, in, in music, we have rests. There's quarter rest, half rest, whole rest. Okay, there's rest. There are three rests that we need to make sure, and you need to make sure you know which one that is being referred to. The first rest that we, we think of seems to be the most obvious because the children of Israel missed out on it, and it what? Oh, the promised land. They missed out on the promised land. But that's, that's the lowest level. He's bringing this to a spiritual point. He's bringing a spiritual point out here through this analogy. Yes, there was the promised land, but God's rest. What was God's rest? 
And here when he mentions that the works were finished from the foundation of the world, what is he speaking of? In verse 4, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. Ah, so there's something that predates the promised land. It's God's rest. What is God's rest? Well, it's mentioned back in Genesis chapter 2. After God created the world, what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. Now, I know kids in the here, they think, well, man, I guess God must have been worn out from creating all the world and the universe. He was so tired. He took a day off, right? No. What did he do? He set a pattern there, of course, for our Sabbath. But there, God ceased from his work, not because he was tired, but he ceased from his work. It was rest, his rest. Now, and in this place again, verse 5, they shall not enter into my rest. Now, verse 6, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, they to whom it was first preached entered in not because or entered not in because of unbelief. The children of Israel did not go into the promised land. That generation didn't. Why? Because they didn't believe God's word. That was a picture, an illustration. Again, verse 7, he says, He limiteth or designates a certain day, saying in Psalm 95, that's the psalm, but he says here, saying in David, saying in David, today, after so long a time as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And what is David saying in Psalm 95? He's giving the same message that was given to the children of Israel. Don't harden your hearts. Why? Because you will miss entering into God's rest, not the promised land. The children of Israel were already there when David spoke. Now, he says in verse 8, For if Joshua, and we've talked about that before, why that word, it says Jesus there, it's the same Greek word as Joshua, but that's referring to Joshua in the Old Testament. If Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward, or in David, or in the Psalms, have spoken of another day. It would have been done, right? Well, I thought Joshua led them into the promised land. Wasn't that the rest? No! That is not God's rest. We're talking about something spiritual. Did Joshua lead them into the promised land? Yes, he did. That next generation, they did enter into the promised land, and it was what God had promised. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. A wonderful land. It was a promised land. God kept his word. That first generation didn't enter in. That is a picture of not entering into God's rest. But if Joshua had given them rest when he led them into the promised land, well, then that would have been done. It would have been fulfilled. He would not have spoken of another day. But he did. He designated a day in Psalm 95, in David, saying, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Now, I want you to note, <clears throat> God rested the seventh day, and there is a future rest for the people of God based on his designating of another day in Psalms. Look at verse 8. Again, for if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken another day? Therefore, note verse 9, what is the conclusion? 
there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. There is yet to come a rest for believers. What is that rest? Well, we're going to see it later on. <clears throat> Again, there's three rests. There's the promised land, that was the analogy, God's rest on the seventh day, and there's a future rest for the people of God. There is a parallel here between, in Hebrews, between the promised land and the new Jerusalem, the city of God. There is a parallel between the promised land and the heavenly city not made with hands that Abraham was looking for. We'll see that later on. This is that promised rest for believers. So he says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God, for he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Now, what's the admonition? Verse 11, Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest lest any man, what, fall after the same example of unbelief. What's the example? Old Testament Israel. They did not believe God. They were refused entry into the promised land. If you do not believe God's word, you will not enter into his rest. And this is the important thing. Rehear God's word and believe it. Don't just hear it and let it fall away. Don't let his words slip. You will not escape if you neglect so great salvation. You will not enter into God's promised rest if you are like Old Testament Israel, who heard God's word, but it was not mixed with faith and did not profit them. Now, we come in this chapter to verse 12. And I think it's, I, I think we need to take a, what well, I see a fresh look. Now, why do I say a fresh look? Everybody knows this verse. I mean, if you grew up in a Christian home or if you've been a Christian for very long, you know this verse. Everybody memorizes this verse and we take it and we memorize it by itself. And truly, it's a standalone verse. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirits and of the joints and marrow and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Great verse. But let's remember it in the context of what's being said. What's the significance of it being the word of God? Go back to chapter 1. God spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken unto us by his son. Give the earnest heed. Give more earnest heed to the things that you have heard. Because... You will let them slip if you don't. You will not escape if you do not pay attention to and receive salvation, which was the message that the Son spoke. Don't harden your heart. Make sure when you hear God's message that you believe it. Don't be like Old Testament Israel or you won't enter into rest. Listen, because what God says, the speech of God, what the Son has said is what? It's quick, it's living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the Word of God. Do you see the theme running through Hebrews of God speaking 
and how you respond to his word is absolutely essential. And how important is his word? Well, look how powerful his word is. It is living. It is able to save. It is able to change you. It is able to cleanse you. The washing of the water of the word. For the word of God is quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even into dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of your motives and your thoughts, the thoughts and the intents of the heart. In fact, neither is there any creature that is not manifested in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of Jesus Christ. Under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He knows all. He knows your heart. And the word reveals your heart. So we need to make sure we connect verse 12 here in the context of hearing and believing God's speech. Chapter 3, this great warning. Chapter 4, describing entering into his rest, the children of Israel. The rest of the promised land they missed out on because of unbelief. We are in danger of the same thing if we do not believe. We will not enter into God's eternal rest. And then he comes now to the end of chapter 4. And he picks up where he left off at the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, verse 1. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Again, be faithful. Hold fast the faith. Let's hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, just as we are, or like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Next week, we will start with these verses, tying it back to the end of chapter 2, and begin to look at what the writer of Hebrews is describing as Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Jesus Christ is superior to the angels who are ministering servants. Jesus Christ is superior to Moses. Moses was the great apostle of the Old Testament, yet he was just a servant. Jesus Christ, as our apostle, is greater than Moses. And he's later going to go on and reveal that Jesus Christ is even greater than Abraham also. In chapter 3, the great warning. In chapter 4, 3 and 4, the great warning. Old Testament Israel, they did not believe. The sin of unbelief will keep you. It will keep you from heaven. It will keep you from God's promised rest. The next week we'll begin to look at Jesus Christ as the great high priest. Again, he's presented in Hebrews in his role of prophet, priest, and king. Next week we'll begin to look at him in that role of high priest. But listen, I hope that you're seeing the theme as it moves through these chapters. Like again, we're covering two chapters in a sermon, and for me, that's a blistering pace, right? But I hope you're catching the big picture. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this, this book, and Lord, being able to connect it 
even in broader chunks and see the themes here as, as we go through. Lord, as, Lord, may we not miss the message, but may we see the importance of Lord being faithful and the importance of your word and how important it is, is, is for us to believe, not to just hear, but Lord, that the word spoken might be mixed with faith. Lord, increase our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.